Dear Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this morning. We ask that your spirit will be with us. We ask that you will guide us as we uh, study your word together. We ask that you will um, enlighten our minds and, uh, and lead us back into uh, the, the paths you would have us. Give us the ability to represent the truth about you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Uh, good morning. We are doing lesson number four in the quarterly in the sanctuary. And the title this week is Lessons from the Sanctuary. And if you look at the first paragraph in the lesson, it says the sanctuary is one of God's major devices to teach us the meaning of the gospel. As we study the sanctuary this week, the drawing below will be helpful. And there's a drawing there if you, if you would like to look at that, because we will refer to that. But first question, which direction as we study, which direction should we direct the current of our study? Use the Old Testament sanctuary to understand the gospel? Or use the gospel of Jesus Christ to under the old, understand the Old Testament sanctuary? Yeah. And, and you think about, we, we've, uh, the lesson has emphasized in a couple of the earlier lessons, the quarterly, has emphasized a couple of the earlier lessons that the sanctuary is a shadow. It uses the word the shadow. Which is better, to study the shadow to understand the object which is casting the shadow? Or to study the object to understand the shadow? I agree that the sanctuary is to teach the gospel, but shouldn't we study the objective reality of Jesus Christ, understand the gospel first, and then use that to understand the meaning of the sanctuary? And I'm going to tell you, most Bible studies and most of the lessons that I've seen, including this one, do it, the back, do it backwards. They study the, the shadow and then project the object into the shadow rather than studying the shadow. Well, this is out of a book some of you may have heard, called Christ Object Lessons, which was published in 1900, over 100 years ago. This is on page 133. It says, The significance of the Jewish economy is not yet fully comprehended. Truths vast and profound are shouted forth in its rites and symbols. The gospel is the key that unlocks its mysteries. Through a knowledge of the plan of redemption, its truths are open to the understanding. Far more than we do, it is our privilege to understand these wonderful themes. We're to comprehend the deep things of God. And I want to notice several points. Uh, I actually agree with everything that was just said. And several points out of this document was written more than 100 years ago. Number one, in 1900, the author that wrote this believed that the sanctuary at that time was not yet fully understood. Meaning that everything that was written before that was only partial, incomplete, limited, and perhaps even misunderstood. Yet, if you'll notice, much of what is taught is hundreds of years old and put out there as if it's the final word. It's not. The gospel is the key. We must have a right understanding of the gospel to understand the symbols. And if we misunderstand the gospel into something like a legal payment system, we'll misunderstand the meanings of the symbols. And we have much more to learn. Truth is progressive. We need to stop resting complacent on concepts that are hundreds of years old and move forward in our understanding. So, with that in mind, I want to want to do that with you guys this morning. And, and the lesson has a little diagram. Hopefully you have one. You can see the diagram of <clears throat> the layout of the sanctuary. And um, for some general principles as we move forward to understand these symbols, the Old Testament sanctuary was a teaching tool. Everything, I don't use that word often, but everything in it was a symbol of something else. Everything was a symbol of something. Not one element was to be taken literally. It was not to be taken concretely. It was to be translated into its ultimate reality. Just as letters are symbols that make up words which represent realities, T-R-E-E, symbols that represent the idea of a tree, but they are not a tree. They're symbols that represent the idea of a tree. 
In the same way, the Old Testament sanctuary are symbols that represent ideas of an ultimate reality. And some of the symbols may have more than one meaning, just like words can have more than one meaning. Lamp, for instance, in the symbols can represent the written word, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, or it can represent the living word, Jesus is a light which lightens all men, or it can represent the church which is a light on a hill. So the, the, the one symbol can represent several different things. And some of the realities are represented by more than one symbol. Jesus, the reality, represented by the lamb. Jesus, the reality, represented by the high priest. Okay. So with that in mind, as we go forth to understand these things, we want to keep those general principles in mind. What are the realities that the symbols are trying to represent? So let's start with the whole system. The whole thing was a grand play. It was a great theater. And there were actors in the play. And the actors were the children of Israel. And the children of Israel represented who or what? The human race. The whole, the whole 12 tribes represent the human race. Every tribe, nation, kindred, and people, and so forth. They came out of Egypt. What does Egypt represent? Symbolically. False slavery to sin. Slavery to sin. Bondage in the world of sin. And Pharaoh represents Lucifer, Satan. That's exactly right. And Moses represented Jesus. That's exactly right. And so, and, and the ark that Moses was found in, Moses as the infant, remember all the, all the male babies were to be drowned in the Nile. That's where they were, they were to die in the Nile River. You understand the Nile River in this situation symbolizes death. Just like in baptism, we, we die in the watery grave and come up. But the ark that Jesus was in represents Jesus, who is the ark that we rest in that saves us from death. Jesus himself, excuse me, Moses himself, was taken out of the, of the river and was raised in Pharaoh's home. Jesus left heaven and was raised on earth, humanly, in the world in which bondage is happening and sin. He's raised here. And then, and he left Pharaoh's home, went out in the wilderness, Moses did, to overcome his self-dependence, and then came back from the wilderness to deliver the people from bondage. Jesus went into the wilderness to start his ministry, to be tempted by Satan to overcome the temptations that tempt us to act in self-interest, and returned from the wilderness to deliver the people from sin. It says in Luke four seventeen through 19 Jesus reading the scripture, said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, bruised and proclaim the acceptable day of the year of the Lord. So he, just as Moses was leading them out of bondage in Israel, Christ is leading us out of bondage with sin. They march through the Red Sea. The waters of the Red Sea represent the grave. The cloud that hover over them represents the Holy Spirit. Moses represents Christ holding open the grave. Their going through represents baptism, death to the old, and resurrection, and the leading the, the, leaving the world of sin, going through the watery grave and coming out to a newness of life. And Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 10.2, where they were baptized in the Red Sea. Moses holding up his hands represents Christ interceding in our behalf to hold open the grave. The two assistants helping Hold open Moses, hold up Moses' hands represents Christ's human agents on earth who spread the gospel, live lives of love and truth, cooperate with God to restrain and keep open the ways of salvation. Pharaoh's army destroyed in the Red Sea 
represents Satan's agents who die as a, look at the, the imagery is brilliant, who die as a result of unrestrained and unremedied sin. As God lets go his restraining hands, the natural results are they drown in their circumstance. And they drown and die in sin. In the end, as God lets go. The people marched in order through the Red Sea and also in their journey in the wilderness. The first tribe in the order was Judah. The last tribe was Dan. Judah is the tribe from which kings came. And Jesus, of course, was from the tribe of Judah. Dan is the, uh, in, in the, the name Dan and Daniel means judgment. And so, um, Jesus is our king. He's also, according to scripture, all judgment was given to Jesus. So this represents Jesus who is king of king and lord of lords at the head of humanity, leading us through to our ultimate. And also Jesus who is the ultimate judge. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. And you see this in the symbolisms. As they constructed the sanctuary, do you find this interesting? As they constructed the sanctuary, God chose Bezalel from the tribe of Judah, and he had a partner, two guys to head out in the building of the temple. And his partner was um, Oholiab. And Oholiab was from the tribe of Dan. So from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of Dan, again, representing Christ, who is the first and the last, they're the ones who actually built the sanctuary and did all the, um, uh, the, uh, the various ornaments and things that were constructed for it. And this, of course, represents Jesus, who, again, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, who branched out from heaven to build his sanctuary, Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. Tell them this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here's the man whose name is Branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and sit and rule on his throne. He will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. So the symbolism of the two being called from the Judah and the Dan tribe, again, represents Jesus, who was the one who was actually going to come and build the sanctuary. The tribes camped around the sanctuary, three on each side, with the Levites as a buffer on all four sides between. So you have three on the north, three on the east, three on the west, three on the south, and then the Levites were actually on all four sides between the other tribes. And, and you ever wonder why, how is there 12 tribes? Wait, we have three on each side, and then Levites, that's 13. You ever wonder about that? It's because Joseph was actually represented by two tribes. There was Ephraim and, um, and Manasseh. So Ephraim and Manasseh were, were uh, and, and Levi moved into the center. And, and the symbolism, what's the symbolism represent? The Levites represent? Priesthood of believers. All, the priesthood of believers, and they are the conduit through which God works to bring people back to a knowledge of him. And so it's as the world is trying to find Christ, it's through God's agents on earth that they find Christ. Now Moses, if you represent, this is really kind of cool, I like this. Moses represents Jesus before his incarnation. When he went into the Father's presence and the two of them planned out and planned all the, the whole plan of salvation and all that was going to happen. And you see Moses going into the presence of God and coming out with the law and the whole instructions on this whole system. That's Jesus represented symbolically working with God to, to, to lay out and, and design the whole plan of salvation. The Lamb represents Jesus during his incarnation on earth. And the high priest represents Jesus after his ascension. And so you have Jesus represented in all three places. And that's why you can have only the high priest can go into the most holy place and then only once a year. 
But you had Moses going in and talking to God face to face all the time. And he wasn't the high priest. How did that work? Because Moses represents God, Christ before his incarnation. The high priest represents Christ after his ascension. Now, how does that connect to only being able to go in once a year? The high priest can only go in once a year because... And how does that connect to Jesus after his ascension? After his ascension, he's the high priest. Mo- but before, before his time on earth, he was w- working out all these plans. After his ascension, he's got another mission now he's going to carry out that won't happen until a certain period of time in history. And that was represented by the high priest going in at the end of the annual cycle. And we will talk about Day of Atonement stuff in two weeks. So that'll be interesting to talk about what all that represents. The court. Any questions so far? That's a good question. Any questions? The court uh, contains the brazen altar and the laver, both made out of bronze. So in order to understand the meaning of the symbols, we have to determine the general lesson being taught first. So before we go any further, how are you viewing the, the plan of salvation? Are you viewing it through the imposed law model where the rules are broken, legal penalty is required, appeasement must be made, propitiation has to occur, expiation has to happen, all these typical terms we have. Are you viewing it through that lens or are you viewing it through the natural law model in which mankind is deviant in a terminal condition, dying and needs to be healed and restored to oneness with God? Which way is it? What's the key? The gospel. And how would you describe the gospel? That's the key that unlocks this. So whichever way you describe the gospel is going to take you down different trails and all this other meaning. So how do you guys describe the gospel? The good news. I don't hear anything. I get criticized, actually. For, I'll tell you guys. I get criticized sometimes from some people, I won't mention any names, that I do all the talking. When I'm here, you guys don't talk. But when I, when I have somebody else here, you guys talk a lot more. The good news is the, the truth about the character of God. That's what the gospel is. The gospel, the good news about God and his kingdom of love. Right. That's the good news. How it works, how it operates, his methods, his principles. His, I mean, and, and this is incredibly good news. It's, it's not this other thing. But do you see how if you hold, which, which view you hold will take you down two trails. Now we understand it. So, so the general, if you were to say, if somebody were to say to you, okay, just give me the big overview. When you talk about that Old Testament sanctuary system, in general, what is the general purpose that it's trying to tell us? That God and his ways are good. God and his ways are good. Anything else? There is a way back to God. There we go. I like that. I like that. It's trying to teach us God's plan to restore us back to him. It's simple. It's God's plan to reconcile, to heal, to, to deal with the damage, to, to address the sin issue, to, to, uh, to cleanse his universe. I mean, lots of ways to say it, but really, it's about Christ leaving the Father's presence, coming to earth to lead us back into unity with the Father. That's just generally what it's trying to teach. And so if we interpret these things, we should be looking for this idea. Are we seeing that it's Christ leading uh, God's plan for the reconciliation and restoration of man back into unity with God? If, that, if, that, if that's what we're seeing, we're seeing something else. Are we seeing Christ, instead of doing something to, to fix man's condition and heal man and bring us back into unity with God, we instead teach that Christ is actually doing something to his dad. His father's got issues. His father's outraged. He's angry. He's hostile. He's mad. And, and Christ has got to do something to get God to calm down. Is that how we teach it? Yes. It's the complete plan of salvation. They're taught out in symbols, yeah. Yeah, yeah, good. So let's, with that in mind, the brazen altar symbolizes 
Well, the altar was constructed out of shittim wood, which was a symbol of the corruptible human nature. It was a wood that was porous and, and so forth, but it was overlaid in the bronze altar with bronze, uh, symbolic of what? A need for purification, I would think. Human, yeah, our, our fallen human condition. Symbolic of our fallen human condition. And the bronze represents, in the one view, they use the word judgment, how we're judged and condemned. My view, it represents our diagnosis, how we are diagnosed as terminal and in need of a savior. Is bronze made of two metals? I believe it is. Tin and brass, isn't it? Or tin and uh, copper. That's what I mean, yeah. Copper and what? The copper and tin, isn't it? Or copper and zinc? Copper and tin? So we two natures, nature of our man, nature of Christ. So the bronze altar represents the starting point in salvation process is what it represents. Yeah, Tim, did the, the bronze liquid up and it filled in the holes of the porous wood? Yes. Mm-hmm. It was covered in bronze completely. And bronze represents, um, in, in scripture, really this, this sense of being judged or, or, or diagnosed. And so our condition is not golden, it's brazen. It's defective. We're diagnosed as such. And so the bronze altar represents the starting point in salvation. And what is the starting point in salvation? Yes? I just want to point out, it's also hollow. The altar for an offering was hollow. Okay. Um, which I think symbolizes um, our lack. Of our emptiness. Our emptiness. Yeah. Good. Well said. Yeah, that's a good point. And so the, the starting point in salvation process is what? What's the starting point in addiction? Step one. We admit that we are powerless of our addictions in our lives. We have to recognize our need. That's the starting point. We have to be convicted that there's something wrong. And so the bronze altar is representative of that starting point when we are diagnosed and convicted that we are defective and we can't save ourselves and we're in need of a savior. This is the step one. The animal that was slain for the uh, sin offering had the inner fat, the fat after it was slain, uh, uh, the, the fat from the inner organs. Not the fat off the whole body, just the fat of the inner organs was taken off from inside it and burned on the brazen altar. What do you think that represents? Think about, think about the symbols. Fat, by the way, represents in Bible, really generally represents sin. So what do you think that fat being taken off the inner organs and burned represents? Cleansing of the heart. Circumcision of the heart. Circumcision of the heart, Yes. Yes, I think so. But who, who, who does the lamb represent? Okay, so the fat's being taken off of the lamb and burned on the altar. So what's it representing? The human nature that Jesus assumed being destroyed, that fallen nature. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. It t- it's that nature that, that, that tempted him in Gethsemane, where he was agonizing and pleading to his dad, being tempted and pulled by human passions to, to save self, but he crucified self instead, and he destroyed it at the cross, and that's symbolized there. And then, also then, because of his victory, we can experience that same transforming inner process where the old man is, is, is crucified. We died of self. The blood represents life. The life is in the blood, so the blood represents the blood of Christ and represents the, the life of Christ. Okay, And the life of Christ is also an expression of the truth. 
Okay? So the blood represents the truth of who God is and the life of Christ, the perfect character that he's developed on our behalf. Um, and applying it, when, when, the, when the sin offering happened for the, for the non-priest Jew, um, the blood was then um, put on the four horns of the brazen altar and poured out to the base of the altar. What would that symbolize? It's Jesus' life. Remember, the bronze altar represents what? The corrupt, unconverted heart, diagnosed as sinful and in need. Now, the blood is being poured out at the base of that thing and also put on the four horns. And the blood symbolizes what? The life, perfect life of Christ and the truth about God. So then what would this being poured out? We're pouring the life of Jesus, the truth about God is being poured onto the heart of an unbeliever. So what's it representing? Conversion. Conversion. Right? Restoration. And restoration, yes. That, that cleansing, that converting experience where the, where this is, would be in Romans chapter 4 when it said that, uh, uh, Abraham trusted God and was recognized as right. See, our natural heart, it says in Romans, is enmity or against God. We war against Him. That's natural. But we come to a point by, you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. The truth wins us to a point we actually surrender to Him and we open the heart and trust Him. That's represented now by the pouring of the blood out, a foundational change in the way our hearts function. That's the pouring on the, on the base, the whole transformation thing. The, on the four horns, horns represent... Horns represent... It represents the brazen, on the brazen, on the brazen altar represents the power of sin in our lives, the defects of character that we've harbored. And so placing the blood on the horns is symbolic of the transforming power of Christ to change our characters. I'm going to tell you there's another view that goes down a penal view. And the penal view is this. When you confess the sin on the animal, the blood of Christ becomes contaminated with sin. The blood of Christ does not cleanse anymore. The blood of Christ now contaminates the sanctuary. And the blood of Christ carries the sin over to the sanctuary and it's put on the horns. And now the sanctuary is contaminated by the blood of Christ carrying sin. Do you like this view? No. Do you know that's the church view? Yes. And then at the end of, of the cycle, the Day of Atonement, the sanctuary has be cleansed because the blood of Christ has been contaminating it with our sin for all year. You won't find that in Scripture. Well, it became sin for us, like you said, so it could be explained that way. Yes, in every every reference to the sacrificial animal's blood, if it ever touched anything, it always made it holy. You check every scripture, every place in scripture that the blood of the... Now, the blood of any other animal contaminated, but the blood of the sacrificial animal made everything it touched holy. You can't find one reference in scripture or the blood of the sacrificial animal contaminated or caused, caused things to be defiled in any way. And if you think about that, if you think about your belief in Jesus Christ, who became sin for us, but he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of, of, of God, when he became sin for us, did he become contaminated by sin, or did he destroy sin? So why would we teach that when sin and comes onto the animal, which represents Jesus, that instead of sin being destroyed, the blood of Jesus becomes contaminated. Why do we teach that? Yes, Russell. Because we have a penal model, that's why. Go ahead. Is there any uh, reference you're aware of that over time, with repeated applications of this blood on the horns, that the horns became blunted for a small... Yes, there is. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. Yes, we're going to get to that in just a minute. So it's all a, a purification process. 
Well, you have to understand the symbols. What do you understand the symbol to mean? Uh, let me give you some quotes on that, if you'd like some quotes. First off, uh, you know the quote in Leviticus 17.11, the life of the creatures in the blood. Jesus said, well, now where does Jesus in John 6 apply it? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Is he talking cannibalism? No. This is a symbol. He's saying, unless you internalize my life into your heart, it needs to be applied here. It's transformational in you. He didn't say, unless the Father sees my blood, you will not get pardoned. He didn't say that, did he? It's very powerful. Do you understand that's what most of Christianity teaches? Unless the Father sees my blood, you cannot be forgiven of sin. But Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. He's telling us that we are the ones who have to be transformed by the metaphorical blood. But we have twisted it backwards, and we have Jesus applying it to the Father because we've accepted the wrong law, which is the opposed law model, rather than the natural law model. And then here's out of uh, that book, uh, Christ Object Lessons, page 102. Notice what is said here. Now I'm going to read you another one after that. The leaven of truth, of what? Truth works a change in the whole man, making the coarse refined, the rough gentle, the selfish generous. By the truth, the impure are cleansed, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now this author says the blood of the Lamb is symbolic of the truth. Who needed truth applied? The, the Heavenly Father, was he confused on a few issues? Uh, had, had, had believed a few lies of the devil and needed some truth to clean up his, his thinking? Or was it humankind that had believed lies and needed the truth applied? So if we understand the blood is symbolic of truth, then whatever application is, it's applied to destroy lies. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So the blood is being applied to those who believe lies. Number one, here's another one. Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 378. I also agree with this. In the study of the Bible, the converted soul, notice the converted soul in the study of the Bible, eats the flesh and drinks the blood of the Son of God, which he himself interprets as the receiving and doing of his words that are spirit and life. So again, what is the blood symbolic of? The truth internalized. Truth transforms. And we come to the lecture on November 9, the seminar, you're going to see how our thinking and the things we believe actually change your brain structure. And this is the devil's power. As he gets you to believe lies, he has power over you. He's the father of lies. And if we believe those lies, it disrupts God's design, disrupts us neurobiologically, disrupts our relationships, disrupts our relationship with God. Okay, so we've got those. So the horns then represent the fire represents, in the brazen altar, represents Holy Spirit. Spirit. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. We've got all kinds of references to the Holy Spirit and fire, so I don't need to read those to you. But the fire before the application of the blood, in my view, represents the Holy Spirit working on the hearts of the unconverted to try to bring them to conviction and bring them to transformation. The fire after the blood is applied is the Holy Spirit working to transform and cleanse, to burn out the old habits and establish the healthy habits. So it's still the Holy Spirit, but before it's convicting, after it's transforming. And what about the laver? What's up with the laver? If you look at your little diagram, we started at the furthest point away from God in the system. The furthest point away from God. God's back in the most holy place, right? And the furthest point away from God in the system is the brazen altar in the system. 
So the laver was made out of solid bronze. The, the bronze altar was made out of this wood covered in bronze, the, the unconverted heart under conviction. But the brazen altar, excuse me, the, the laver was made out of solid bronze, no wood, and it was filled with water. The water is symbolic of the Holy Ghost, in this case, the Holy Spirit, which fills the laver, and the laver is represented the Word of God. The laver was, you know, it was built out of where they got the bronze for the laver? And you can look this up in Exodus uh, 38 8 if you'd like. The mirrors, that's exactly right. The mirrors that the women brought out of Egypt. Not just any bronze, the mirrors that were brought out of Egypt were melted down to make the labor. What do you think that's symbolic of? Any references in Scripture to looking into a mirror? The law, the, the Scripture. And what is the purpose of the looking into the law or the Scripture? What's it to do? Convict you of sin. It's to convict you. It's to, it's to, it's to, and also, if you're already converted, then you are, we just read a couple other quotes of partaking. When you partake of the word, enlightened by the spirit, it's healing and cleansing and transformational. So we have a couple scriptures. Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of, of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So there's one about that washing and renewal, the symbolism coming from the washing and cleansing. And the priest, by the way, only the priest and high priest washed there. So that represents, the priest and high priest represent those who are converted, and they wash here for the cleansing of their minds from the distortions about God is what's being symbolized. And then Ephesians 5, 25-27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself uh, for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Washing with water through the word. So we have the Holy Spirit and the word together, and our minds are cleansed as we study the word and partake the truth enlightened by the Holy Spirit. So we find a theme of washing with the word and the Holy Spirit carried through with, by Jesus in the foot washing service. Our feet symbolize our journey through life. Naked feet symbolize revealing truthfully our life journey to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Washing another's feet symbolizes the Holy Spirit and using, symbolize others directed by the Holy Spirit using God's words, methods, and principles to help us clean up our journey, removing impure practices from our lives and experience cleansing of character. And washing another's feet reveals our willingness to help another as they reveal their life journey and share how they have gotten themselves dirty in sin, help them practice God's principles and apply his truths to their lives to clean up their journey. The vessels that carried the blood from place to place. The vessels that carry the blood from place to place represent. Any thoughts? <clears throat> the believers. The Christians. That's exactly right. Acts 9.15, the Lord said to, to uh, him, Go your way, um, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles. And in 2 Timothy 2.21, But in the great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and earth. Some are honored, dishonor, so forth and so on. And the vessels assemble those, and if you think about it, when the animal was slain, the priest, which represents the believer, catches the blood, which represents the truth about God and his kingdom and his methods and his principles, in the vessel, and the vessel carries that truth to various points, and that's us. We are to catch the truth about God into our lives. We are to carry it. Out and witness, yes. Um, the, for the basin of washing, the priest had to stop there in both directions, going to the altar and into the into the. Sanctuary. That's right. And yeah. so it becomes like a central 
you know, it's it's necessary for either direction, for sharing the gospel or for yes. stepping into God's Yes, we don't go out and share. They had to wash before they actually went and helped somebody with a sacrifice. Yeah. Meaning that we aren't fit to go share the gospel until we first have our own minds and hearts cleansed in humble submission to God, the Spirit, and study of his word. Well said. Thank you for that. All right. The daily priest represents, and we've said this already, the priesthood of believers, and I won't give you the quotes for that, white robes worn by the daily priest. The perfection of Christ. Yeah. The perfection of Christ. And there's uh, there's texts in here uh, in Scripture that document that. Let's see. So the covering of the sanctuary. You know, the sanctuary had a cover. Three, three layers. Three layers in the cover. First cover was goat hair curtain. Goat hair curtain. Goat hair, symbolic of human sinfulness, the fallen condition or fallen nature. Goats in scripture repeatedly uh, are used to represent deception. Uh, Rebecca used a goat to deceive Isaac. David's wife, Michael, used goat's hair pillow to deceive Saul's messengers. In the judgment, the wicked who are lost are the sheep are on the one hand and the goats are on the other hand. Um, the curtain made out of goat's hair was made into two parts, actually they had 11 parts, six sewn together and five sewn together. So it was ultimately 11 different sections sewn six together and five together. The 11 um, in Bible symbolism represents the chaos of sin. The the group of six, six, as you know, in Bible uh, numbers or numerology represents fallen man in our fallen state, six. Uh, the, the, the curtain made of the six was doubled over and hung over the opening of the sanctuary that led out to the court so it could be seen from the court. So if you're in the court, you could look back at the sanctuary, there's the opening going in, and hanging over was the goat's hair curtain that was made out of six, representing our fallen sinful condition in a constant need and daily need of Christ's work and cleansing and grace. One of the five, uh, uh, the one made out of five, five, by the way, in Bible symbolism represents grace, is symbolic of Christ who took our fallen condition upon himself in order to cure and overcome. Uh, the combination of the five and the six together uh, is symbolic of Christ's grace overcoming the chaos of sin in, in fallen humanity. Rams, the, the next layer of the covering was ram skin dyed red. The rams were uh, used as animals offered to consecrate the priesthood. Jesus, of course, is our high priest, uh, who brings the healing solution, and the dyed red is symbolic of Christ's life that was given for us to heal our solution. And so thus we have the perfect life of Christ over, over the sinful nature, representing that Christ's life overwrites our sinful nature, and we get a new nature. Isn't that cool? And then on top of that was badger skin. And badger skin was tough, durable, impenetrable covering which withstood all that nature could throw at it. The heat of the sun, the rain, the storms. So what do you think that represents? Who's the prince of this world? Yeah, there you go. This represents the perfection of Christ that covers and protects us from all the attacks of Satan. No matter what the prince of this world threw at Christ, he withstood it and overcame. And when we surrender to Christ, no matter what the the darts, the fiery darts that the devil throws at us, when we have Christ's character and trust in him, we extinguish those and we overcome. Is this cool? The boards in the sanctuary. 
the boards. The boards in the sanctuary. Consider the symbolism first. In order to make a board, where does a board come from? And what do trees represent? They represent people, usually. And they've got lots of text that represent trees. And, and, and so in order to make a board, though, what do you have to do to the tree? Cut it down. So you're severing it from its roots. And the roots of a tree are in what? In the earth. Okay, think the symbols. Mankind is rooted in earth, world, worldliness. In order to be a pillar in God's temple, we have to be cut away from our roots in this world. And all the branches had to be stripped. Which means we have to stop producing fruit of the world. And then the, the tree, the board, once it was cut away from its roots in the world, and it's stripped of its production of worldly fruits, is covered in gold. Yeah. Symbolic of the perfection of Christ covering are imperfection. And on either side, there were ten boards on both sides, symbolic of completion. You know, the number ten, it's the totality of things. On one end, <clears throat> there were six boards with two corner boards. Six boards and then two corner boards for a total of eight boards. Six boards, symbolically, the number six represents man. The two in Bible is, is, is the, our unity with Christ, our reconciliation with Christ. And so what it's symbolically saying is man connected with Christ, six, two, equals eight. Eight is the Bible number for new beginning. When we are connected with Christ, we have a new beginning. And so that's the symbolism on the one end. And on the other end, there were two corner boards representing Christ at the door. He is the door in the opening. Jay, yes? Did the Israelites understand all of this when Moses did that? Do the church today understand all this? No. Some of them probably did. Um, Jesus said that Abraham um, l- l- uh, saw my day and rejoiced. So Abraham had comprehension of some of the meaning. And I'm sure some of the people had comprehension of some of the meaning. But I'm sure many of them didn't understand it. So the boards also stand upright. They stand upright in the sanctuary. And we, of course, are a symbolic of those renewed in Christ who stand upright for the kingdom of God. Each soldier in Israel, when they registered as, uh, as their registration in, in the, in the um, census, had to give a half shekel of silver to the temple. Each soldier, half shekel. Regardless of whether the soldier was rich or poor, they all had to pay a half shekel. The silver that was given to the temple was used to make the, um, the, um, the stands upon which the boards would sit. It took 3,000 shekels to make one talent. It took one, uh, uh, and that was the weight of the sockets which the board stood in, and it took two sockets for each board which meant it was the atonement money, this was the atonement money, of 12,000 soldiers for each board. 12,000 soldiers to make the sockets for each board. Isn't that interesting? How many total boards? Ten on, ten on each side, um, eight on this end, and two on this end. So 20, that's, that's 30, 30 boards. Um, symbolically, there's a couple of meanings here. Um, by the way, silver represents the reconciliation, the atonement, the, 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 the back into unity. That's why they were made out of silver. Um, bringing us together again, uniting us to God, was a great cost. It cost a lot. cost God a lot. 
not paying a penalty, but it was costly. It was expensive, uh, a huge sacrifice on God's part. And we are only able to stand upright as we're anchored in what Christ has done for us. Yes? Wasn't there approximately 360,000 Israelites coming out of Egypt? Um, I believe there was more than that. I thought there was about a million. Yes. There was about a million. Pardon? Including the mixed multitude. Yeah. Um, the boards were held together. Now, you got the board standing upright in their sockets. They're held together with five bars made out of the shittim wood covered in gold, which are symbolic of Christ's dual nature, his human and divine nature. And the five is symbolic of grace. And so we are held together. And one of those, one of those five, the one right in the middle, actually was fitted to go right through the center of the boards. The boards are probably about this wide, and that, and that one would go all the way down through the center of those boards along that ten uh, thing, which was representative, of course, of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Isn't it cool? All covered in gold. Perfect. Yes? I have a question. Sure. Probably most of you know, but how do we, is there, were there Bible scholars that came up with all of these Things that the symbol meant this, and you know, Moses meant Christ, and silver means. I mean, how how did we come up with that? So you're not trusting me, is what you're saying? <laughs> I just wonder. There are yes, there there, there are many Bible scholars, and there are some there are some different views on this. My views are not exactly the same as some of the scholars. My views on some of these you'll find uh, documented in many Bible commentaries. Some of the stuff, like what I just went over with the boards and stuff, that's pretty standard interpretation. Um, but um, but some of the stuff on the, on the altar and stuff, that's not so standard. And you have to then look at the meaning. Do you see the blood representative of truth in the life of Christ? And if so, you think through, well, then where does it need to be applied? And what function will the blood actually do? Does it need to go to his father? Did the father need truth in a new nature? Did humans need truth in a new nature? So then well, if it's being applied, then if father didn't need it and we did, then it must mean this, not that. You follow how it works. Depends on your understanding of the gospel. Yeah. What about the numbers being... The numbers, many of that's many of that's standard. For instance, the ten toes, the ten horns, universal or global or complete, um, six, 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 the number of a man. Okay, I mean, many of these are just well known in scripture. Um, so, um, the holy, the holy place represents. So the courtyard and outward represents the world. The Levites are out there working in the world, ministering the blood of Christ and the gospel to bring people to conversion at the brazen altar and so forth. So they're ministering to bring people. So what would then the holy place represent? The church. And let's see if, let's see if the symbolism supports that idea because what would we expect to find in the church? What we expect to find in the church? Well, the door first represents Christ. The door to the holy place represents Christ. He is our door. He is the gate. Remember the sheep pen. The gate to the sheep pen represents Christ. I'm back. He's the way back into unity with the Father. Through the door, the door had a veil, but the veil was kept open at this door. And the light of the lamp shone out of the uh, holy place into the courtyard. Any, anybody take or someone want to what that symbolize? Evangelism. So, number one, Christ, Christ is an open door. Evangelism. The lamp... Spirit. Spirit of God. Truth. Truth, light, I mean, multiple different things. The oil in the lamp, the Spirit of God, yeah? But shining out into the courtyard. The truth of God's kingdom shining out of the church into the world. 
as a witness to all nations, yeah. Um, Evangelism. The five pillars, I don't know if you know at the end of the door, there were five pillars, and the five pillars were um, crowned with gold, crowned, you know, tops on them. Rep, uh, the number five represents grace of God through Christ. The pillars were made out of wood, covered in gold, and crowned in gold. Represents, of course, Christ bringing us God's grace. Um, the curtain uh, contained the same colors as the curtain of the most holy place, but no angels were sewn on this one. And this curtain was kept open, so it did not obstruct our view of God. But it was very similar to the one that did obstruct our view of God. Same colors, same threads. Just keep that in mind as we move forward. Um, the lampstand, the written in the living word, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light into my path, Psalms 119.105. The, the central lampstand, in other words, the central post in the lampstand. Christ. Christ. He's the center. But the lampstand then, and it had, a, and it had a, a, a flame on the central post. But there were six branches coming off. Six is the number of? Man. Man. So what do you think it represents then? The church. Okay? Christ and man together represent the church and, and the ho- filled with the spirit. And then we have the flames which give off light. And so it's our coming back to Christ, giving our hearts to him, filled with the Spirit, we are now lights unto the world. And this, of course, I've got the scripture here. It's like, you're a light in the world. A city on a hill can't be held, so, and so forth. And then, and then we're supposed to trim our lamps. Remember they talk to the, 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 the wise virgins, trim the lamps. Symbolic of? Well, the high priest and only the high priest trimmed the wicks on the lamp each morning and each evening. Meaning, representing Christ working in your heart to trim away defects of character so you can burn more brightly for him as we come to him every morning and evening and have that communion with him. On the lampstand, there was carved almonds, which represent the fruits of the Spirit that are manifest in the church. When the wick is not trimmed properly, then the wick will cause soot and darkness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, so he says, when well, wick isn't trimmed properly, it's all here. It's soot and darkness and smoke. And yeah. So think about the symbols of that. It's, it, we could, we could extrapolate a meaning. Uh, when we're, when we're in the church and we don't allow Christ to actually cleanse our characters, but we're members of the church, then we actually cause darkness. Right. Hmm. Not said. The oil represents the Spirit of God. The table, the table represents Christ. It was made of wood, covered in gold. Uh, represents our incarnate God who took humanity upon himself but perfected it, the wood with humanity, perfection, gold, and serves us, of course, the bread in 12 loaves on the, represents Christ, Christ who was uh, 12 loaves enough for all humanity to nurture our souls and to heal us. The 12 loaves of showbread, they were, Christ himself said, I'm the bread of life, so forth, so we have that reference. The loaves were made out of fine flour, no lumps, no leaven, representing the purity of Christ without sin. The Hebrew word for cakes or the, for the showbread is uh, chala, and according to Strong's, is, is usually a cake that is punctured or perforated. Then interesting, symbolic of Christ's body, which was pierced for us. Um, incense was placed on top of the two stacks of loaves, and every Sabbath, now look at the symbolism, every Sabbath, the priests would come together into the holy place. The holy place represents the church. The priests represent... The believers, and on Sabbath, they would join in the holy place with the high priest, representing Christ, who burns the incense on the altar. We'll get to the altar in a second. And they eat the bread together. What does that symbolize? 
coming together each Sabbath in the church with Christ to break bread of truth together, to partake of Christ in our hearts, and then incense burns in the hearts. I'll jump to the golden altar. What do they think the golden altar? If the bronze altar represents an unconverted heart, what do you think the golden altar in the church represents? The converted heart. This is the heart of the Christian. This is the heart of the person who's given their heart to the Lord. This is the golden altar, represents the, those who have been reconciled. And notice that the incense was burned there. The fire represents the Holy Spirit, which indwells the believer. The incense is burned on the altar, symbolic of the prayers going up to heaven. Notice the incense wasn't burned on the brazen altar because the unconverted don't pray. It's the converted who pray. The incense also represents Christ-like character burned into the hearts of the peoples we become. And notice 2 Corinthians 2.14. And if you were, uh, um, it's really cool, the symbolism, because if you were out in the world, in the 12 tribes, and you were, you know, wanting to, what would kind of draw you to come near? Well, when they would burn the incense, it was, it was a special incense. You, you were forbidden from making this for any other purpose. And it would burn on that, sanct- on that altar. What do you think incense does when it wafts up and out? The incense goes out over the camp with a beautiful fragrance. And that fragrance draws people. So listen to 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in, procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are, and those who are perishing. You see, that's, that, that smoke, it's the heart of the believer, the, the golden altar where the incense was burned, made a beautiful aroma, and that's us. We make a beautiful aroma that draws people to Christ. I've never understood here, uh, with a massive group of people like they had, was this required of everyone, or was it people who had just been convicted of their sin and came? Required for what purpose? Huh? Are you asking required for what purpose? You asked required. Required for what purpose? For the forgiveness of No, it was not required for the forgiveness of sins. In fact, the New Testament makes it clear there was no forgiveness of sins from the shedding of bulls and, and, and goats. And uh, people like Nebuchadnezzar and Nicodemus, uh, who never participated in the system, we have every reason to believe, were reconciled to God and saved in Old Testament times. The patriarchs and prophets before Moses were reconciled to God and never did any of this stuff. Okay. Who was required to do them? The actors in the play. Well, she, I think what she's asking is, of the, of the 12 tribes, yes. was every human yes. required to participate? If they, wanted to, if they wanted to maintain membership in the 12 tribes. Okay. They were, they were free to leave the 12 tribes. Convicted of sin, they also did it? Yeah, if they were members in the 12 tribes. Well, I thought they all had to be. No, no, no. Ray, Rahab joined. She didn't have to join. She did join. Okay. Ruth joined. She wasn't, but she joined. Mm-hmm. And then once they joined, they had to do this. Fire, again, represents the Holy Spirit working in the hearts of the believers. And now the horns that Russell asked about. Notice the golden altar has horns on it as well. But the horns on the golden altar are much smaller than the horns on the brazen altar. Representing the transforming work that's already been going on, uh, but... Um, there are still, even in the converted, even those who are uh, walking with the Lord, like Moses, way up to the end, there was an occasional stumble. 
the occasional shortcoming still in the heart that needed to be cleansed. That's the smaller horns. The, the vestigial remnants of unhealed sin in our lives represented by the small horns. And that's where the blood was applied to the golden altar, to the, to the horns. Not poured out at the base of the golden altar because we're already converted and transformed just to cleaning up the remnants that are still left. So, and, the gold, and there was a golden crown around the, the altar representing, of course, the crown of victory that we receive in Christ. There was no crown around the brazen altar because there's no victory there. Uh, curtain with the angels sewn on it represents the lies told by Satan which separate us from God. And the carnal nature which we hold. The two things that separate from God is, our, is the lies that we believe and our sinful nature. Both of those things are represented there. And I don't have time to go because we're getting short and I want to hit a couple other points. But at the cross when Christ died, notice, if, if you were a high priest, and you, if you were a daily priest, and you loved God, and you wanted to, and you came in, you shared the bread with the high priest, and your hearts are burning within you with passion for the Lord, your fragrant aroma, you're, you're partaking of the word, you're being enlightened, your, your heart is longing to see God. So you look back to God, to the Shekinah glory. You can see some brightness back there, but something obstructs you. You can't see him. Something's blocking you. That's the veil. And on the veil, there are angels. Does anyone really believe Jesus obstructs our view to God? Do you understand that most of the church, our church at least, teaches that veil represents Jesus? Jesus does not obstruct our view to God. And they teach that, and then they teach that at the cross, when the veil was rent, that was God killing Jesus. Because God rent the veil. No, 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 no. What obstructs our view to God? Where did sin start? With who? With what kind of beings? Yes, and we are at war with principalities and powers of darkness that are trying to obstruct our view of God. And we have a carnal nature also that tempts us from within. And Christ took that condition upon himself and cured it at the cross. So at the cross, the two things that obstruct us, our own evil desires, it says, and the lies that we believe about God were destroyed at the cross and the veil was rent. And the new and living way was opened for us in Jesus Christ. And we can see God again. Wasn't that curtain also shorter so that there was room? Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. It was an obstruction, but it wasn't a complete obstruction. And that was that symbolized. Exactly right. Um, so the Shekinah, most holy place, Shekinah represents the Father. Um, the angels uh, represent the unlooking universe. The um, lid, the hilasterion, the lid, uh, represents Jesus. It was solid gold, and it, almost everything in the temple had specific measurements on, on the size. And, uh, the, the, the lid had no thickness measurement. No measurement was given to it. Limitless, boundless. Jesus Christ and his love and his healing grace and his power to transform and all these other things. He's limitless. He's boundless. Represents that. And then the, the box underneath, which is made out of that porous wood again, covered in gold, filled with manna, the law, manna, and the rod that budded, represents the converted back in reconciliation with Christ. And the first thing that went in that box was the law. Excuse me, take that back. Was the was the manna was the manna. We come to partake of Jesus. We, we, we see the truth that he's brought us. And as we see the truth of, of, of Christ, we're converted. We're convicted. We open the heart. And we open the heart, he writes the law on the heart and mind. The law was put in next. And as he writes the law on the heart and mind, we're transformed to bring about peaceable fruits of righteousness. We are no longer dead in our trespass and sin, a dead stick. We are now alive and bring forth fruits of righteousness. Aaron's rod that was dead and it brings forth life. It's symbolic of our transforming journey. And we're covered by Christ who reconciles all things under one head. So we have the Shekinah touching the lid. We have the angels on looking universe connected to the lid. And we have sinful, reconciled, healed, restored man touching the lid. All things connected to Christ, who is the lid. It's beautiful stuff. Beautiful symbolism. Okay. And then, so we'll, we'll finish up with just a couple of quick looks at the, a couple of the offerings. Sin offering for the non-priest. 
the non-priest sin offering. The sinner would come, confess sins on the head of the animal, and the sinner would then cut the animal's throat, symbolizing the life is in the blood, and God's law is the law of, of love. It just gives, so the life just circles and circles and circles, but sin severs the circle, severs the law of love, and results in death. That's what it symbolizes. So sin severs the circle of love, and death happens. Sinner cuts the throat, uh, symbolizing the lies. It was uh, confessed on the head of the animal because the lies of Satan are believed in the mind, and that's where sin happens is in the mind, and it severs us from our connection with God. Blood represents the life, love, character of God, carried by the priest, the vessels, both representing believers who share the truth, poured out at the brazen altar, and applied to the horns, representing the conversion and transforming. Uh, of that person who's just now coming to Christ. Um, and then washing of the organs, uh, the burning of the fat, representing the destruction of the carnal nature in Christ first, and then us being crucified by self. The washing of the organs, uh, and then um, burning those, represents the cleansing of the mind from the lies, washing the organs, cleansing the mind. And then the burning of the organs, representing the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, and, and, and our hearts burning, in, burning with, with truth. So, um, let's see, in the Lamb... Um, meat eaten by the daily priest is the internalization of Christ. We become more Christ-like as we minister to others, as we share his truth. We are transformed in that process. We are nurtured by Christ as we do this, uh, taking the, the meat of the lamb. Okay, that's the, the sin offering by the non-priest Jew. Know where the, notice where the blood went. and went to the brazen altar. But if a priest sinned and brought his sin offering, initially it's the same. They confess sin on the head of the lamb. Same symbolisms there. The priest that sinned, not the ministering priest, cut the throat of the animal. The ministering priest then takes the blood and carries it into the holy place and puts it on the horns of the golden altar and sprinkles it seven times before the veil. If you, if you put all the pieces together, symbolizing what? Why is it going to the golden altar? Because what is it, whose heart is represented by the golden altar? The converted. Who does the priest represent? The converted. These are the vestigial remnants that need to be cleansed still in the heart and character of the, of the converted, the Christian who stumbles and falls. We still need the blood of Christ transforming. And pl- That's what's being symbolized. Seven times before the veil. Seven is a pr- number of perfection. It's God perfecting the church and his, his, uh, his cleansing power, undoing the damage that a, a, a Christian in sin does to the name of God. You see, before the veil, that veil or the lies of Satan that obstruct our view of God. And when we are Christians and take the name of Christ and go out, act unchristlike, we add to the lies and obstruct the truth about God. Thus, the blood is sprinkled seven times before the veil when we come back to Christ because we need the, the grace of Christ to undo the damage that we've done to obstruct the name of Christ. And then uh, the rest of it is pretty much the same after that. Organs washed, fat burned, and so forth. Okay, any closing questions? Wow, so, yes, yes. The church, you're not talking about a denomination, you're talking about a priesthood of believers. Priesthood of believers, that's correct. Yes. The, the mind is where communication and understanding takes place. The mind is where communication and understanding takes place. That's exactly right. And so there's the holy place in the mind where Christ is working to heal and cleanse us. That's weird to internalize. So this whole process, if you notice, we can view it one way, the old way, which is a whole system of legal penalties and, and rules and, and lists of bad deeds and offended God who has to be appeased and Jesus goes in and he has to be hidden from his dad so his dad won't strike him down and, and all this kind of stuff going on and he comes out and takes a, and, 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 and there's this list of, uh, or we can see it as God working through Christ to transform mankind back into perfection so we are one day unified with God again. The image of God in the mind. Yeah, exactly. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have sent your Son to do for us that which we could not do. 
to take our condition and overcome, cure, cleanse. And now we know that Jesus stands in heaven, directing all the agencies of heaven for the healing and transforming of your church on earth, Lord. We open our hearts and minds. We ask for your spirit to cleanse, restore, regenerate. Give us the ability to communicate effectively. There's so much of the world that is still just completely taken by the distortions about you that have been told for so many millennia. Give us the ability to tell this message, to tell it powerfully, that you can come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.